Hey everyone, I'm Janet B. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia here in nice, warm and sunny New Jersey, where it was actually in the 80s today. So I know, fantastic. Um, so we are going to talk about my favorite chapter and one of what I think is a really important one, um, we agnostics. So this is about the, the finding God part. So we're just going to say a prayer, dive in, and we will work our way through it. I promise. In fact, we're going to take two sessions to go through this chapter. We're going to start tonight and we're going to finish on Monday. So we are going to kick off on page 44, um, where it says, in the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism or compulsive eating. Well, what have we learned, right? So they say, okay, by this point, you should have learned something. So I'm just gonna flip back to the bottom of page 43, where it sums up what we should have learned um, once more. So again, they're hammering it home to us. The alcoholic compulsive eater at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink or first compulsive bite except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. So they're saying what we've learned is that we have no effective mental defense against the first compulsive bite. Um, if you're not quite convinced of that, we've got materials on our website, something, um, the broken bridge that explains why we have no mental defense. Trisha will put that info in the chat, please. And it says, neither ourselves nor any other human being can provide such a defense. So what that tells me, right, is as much as you all may love me, if I'm going to eat compulsively, you can't do anything to stop me. Yes, I can make an outreach call and you know sometimes that helps, but you can't give me power. It says his defense must come from a higher power, capital H, capital P, meaning God. So they're telling us, okay, you've learned something of compulsive eating. We're back on page 44. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the, I'm gonna say compulsive eater and non-compulsive eater. And then they tell us what categorizes an addict. If when you honestly want to, you can't quit entirely, or if when eating, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably, let's say, a compulsive eater. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness, which only a spiritual experience will conquer. So they're saying that it is possible to honestly want to and be unable to stop eating compulsively. Well, that in a way is comforting to me because for my first six and a half years of OA, I honestly wanted to stop eating compulsively and I couldn't. And what some very well-meaning but not well-informed people said is you don't really wanna stop because they thought the problem was lack of desire. But what they're telling us right at the beginning of this paragraph is it is possible to have all the desire in the world and be unable to stop. We would never tell someone with cancer, you must not have a desire to make your cancer cells stop multiplying or you'd be in remission. That, that would be mean. Um, 
so let's be careful not to do that to each other. Sometimes people have a desire, but they don't know how, and that defines an addict. Then they tell us what our solution is, that we're suffering from an illness, and illnesses have a set of symptoms, which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Well, first, what is a spiritual experience? And that's really defined back on page 25. Um, it says, the great fact is just this and nothing less. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And here's what happens when we have one. It revolutionizes our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And he has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do for ourselves. So basically God comes in, sees the faulty wiring, right? Oh, this is connected to selfishness. Now we're going to reconnect that into unselfishness, God-centeredness, concern for others, and just kind of a rewiring of our entire hearts. That's what a spiritual experience is. Now, why is it necessary? Well, if I have a brain tumor, um, one of the symptoms is a headache, probably. So if I take Tylenol, it may make my headache feel better for a few minutes, for an hour, but it's not going to get rid of the brain tumor because it needs something else. This is a spiritual malady. So the solution has to be a spiritual one, a spiritual experience. They're very clear about that. In chapter five, they say, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Okay. Um, next paragraph says, to one who feels he is an atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. Um, interesting, right? They say over and over in this book, some people feel like they're an atheist or an agnostic. They think they're an atheist or agnostic, but they're really not. And we'll go into that in detail on Monday. Um, but they say, okay, for right now, let's assume you believe you're an atheist or an agnostic. Um, you really have two choices, to continue on to a compulsive eating death or to live on a spiritual basis. And they say, yeah, that probably doesn't seem easy, but if you really go deep, it really isn't all that difficult. And it says, don't be disconcerted, right? Um, I can see someone being disconcerted, right? If I came along and someone said, you have to believe in Santa Claus in order to recover, I would say I'm sunk because there's no way that I believe in Santa Claus. I hope there's no like six-year-olds on the line that I've just spoiled Christmas for. Okay, we're good. Okay, um, but for some people, they may be that disconcerted, like there's no way I can believe in God. So they say, okay, let's look at other things that you think may have helped you. And they say, codes of morals are a philosophy of life, a code of morals, like the 10 commandments, or even just basic, you know, do unto others as I would have them do unto me. They said, it doesn't work. Why? Page 45, 
such codes and philosophies did not save us, no matter how much we tried. And there's that one word is the key, did not save us. I need to be rescued. If I'm drowning, there's no moral code or philosophy of life that's going to save me. I need to be rescued. And that's what this program is about. God launching a search and rescue program for us. So it says, okay, we could wish to be moral. We can wish to be philosophically comforted. We could wish it with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. Just believing in the 10 commandments or something doesn't give me power. And then why is that an issue at all, this power? And the next sentence just nails it. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. So my problem was never lack of desire, lack of a good moral code, lack of a good food plan or anything like that. Lack of power, right? I have a little lamp here. If it's not plugged in, I could be pushing the on and off switch all day long and nothing's going to happen until it's plugged into a power source. So again, if we're trying to solve a problem, we want to define a problem, right? I'm sure they teach us. I vaguely remember that back from like eighth grade science class or something, right? We have to define our problem. So our problem is lack of power. And then it says, beautiful line, we had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously, but where and how are we to find this power? And then the promise. Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So they tell me that's the numero uno purpose of this book, to help me find the power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. And I think if, you know, if we've been around to a couple meetings, we can look and say, okay, well, you know, maybe there's something to this power because here's a bunch of people who say they believe and that God has done for them what they couldn't do for themselves and, and they don't binge anymore, but I don't know. This book gives us our first clues about this power if we're open-minded says its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Okay, so let's go on a treasure hunt and find clues about God. So a power greater than myself. So the wind is a power greater than I am, right? But the wind can't solve my problems. So there goes the wind or just like energy flowing through the universe. No, it's got to be able to reason. So that's the first thing we know about God has to be able to reason. It says this power is, is going to solve my problem. Um, I'm pretty smart. I have two master's degrees. I couldn't figure out how to solve this problem. So this power that's greater than me has to be smart. This illness is smarter than I am. This power has to be smarter than the illness. And this illness is also stronger than I am. So this power has to be strong, right? If I have one units of power and the illness has a hundred units of power, this 
power greater than myself has to have at least 101 units, right? Of course, we come to find out infinite power and infinite love. Um, but for now, we'll go with at least 101 units. And to me, most important, if this power is going to solve my problem, this power must care about me. Right, because I could solve a lot of problems, probably, but you know, I don't because they're just people that, you know, they're not in my orbit. But this God must care about me personally. So possesses a consciousness, is smart, strong, and cares about me. So those are our first clues about God. And they tell us that, you know, okay. You know, you may say, yeah, it's great to find this fellowship. Great to know I'm not the only compulsive eater on the planet, but I'm not really interested in hearing about God. That's a subject that I've evaded or ignored my whole life. And then they say, bottom of page 45, we know how he feels. We've shared his honest doubt and prejudice. And then this paragraph gives us I think it's five prejudices that we can have against God. Um, the first one is that the idea of God with which someone had tried to impress us with, with as a child didn't work. So for instance, someone went to Catholic school, nuns hit him on the, hit him on the wrist with a ruler. So with that, they throw out the baby with the bath water and say, anything associated with God is no good right? Because we don't have a, a working conception. We may believe in God, but not have a working conception. So because the idea of God we got when we were kids didn't work. Um, number two, if I believe in God, that makes me weak, right? Like I shouldn't have to rely on anyone. Well, you know, I need to rely on electricity if I want to see at night. It doesn't make me weak. It it honestly just makes me kind of a person with common sense. Um, and Are so, you if God, kidding me? so if God is the person who the entity who can um, handle this, then it it's, makes sense to believe in God. So again, we're just looking, we're examining. Um, the other thing is calamity. And that's a problem that Bill Wilson had. If we look back on page 11, right, we see that Bill says the wars which had been fought, the burnings, the chicanery made me wonder if the religions of mankind had done any good. Um, and he actually said, if there was a devil, he seemed the boss. Pretty strong words. Yet Bill was able to overcome that. And the person, um, Ebby, the person who 12 stepped him, basically didn't argue with him. And I mean, I could say that I could say, how could a good God allow things like human trafficking? And the answer to that is like, I don't know, but I only know that I'm underqualified for the job of God and that there are certain questions I may not have answers to in this lifetime, but I do know just like what Ebby told Bill and just like what Bill found out, is that when we turn our will and our lives over to this God, 
he takes away the obsession and we're able to live lives of happiness, joy, and freedom. And then the last one, oh, two more. One is that people who believe in God, who claim to believe in God aren't very nice. And to that, I would say two things. One, we're all works in progress. We all make mistakes on any given day. You know, any one of us could do a really rotten thing. It's true. Um, and the other thing is just because someone says they're godly doesn't mean they really are, right? If I came on and said, I'm an Eskimo, it doesn't mean I'm an Eskimo. And the last thing, and this is, I think, true for a lot of us, if I really believe in God, I can't do what I want. If I really believe in God, I can't do what I want. So what they're telling us is that we have to examine our prejudices to see what they are. And then on page 46, they give us such great encouragement. They say, we found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice, so we have to look at our prejudices and then just um, see them for what they are the way Bill did and just say, okay, I give up. Um, as soon as we're able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commence to get results. So when we do the work to look at our prejudices from our childhood or, you know, or the ones that are self-serving, we get results. And it says, even though it was impossible for us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. So they're real clear, God with a capital G. Well, it says we get results. What results do we get? And the next paragraph is really clear that as soon as we admit the possible existence, we begin to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction. And that's what we get. And I think mo for my sponsees, when they're on step two, when they're finishing up step two, I check to see, okay, do we really have a solid step two? Do you feel a new sense of power? As in the obsession with food is diminishing a little bit and direction as in what you're supposed to do next. And generally it's yes. So we get power and direction. I think this is so important because our, pro our problem is lack of power. And so the solution is power. When do we get our first infusion of power? Step two. Step two, right? That's when we begin to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction. So we get it with the second step. Not when we go to meetings, not when we get a food plan, not even when we take a first step. So that's why we want to do those things, get a food plan, you know, um, take our first step and then get to step two as quickly as we can, because that's where we get our power. But they're real clear that it is God, but it's God as a, an individual conceives of God. So Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, no religion at all. It's all fine in this program. All are welcome. Um, and so on page 47, they tell us that, okay, it's okay to just start slow with a willingness. 
with the clearing away of our prejudices. And it says that was great news for we had assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith, which seemed difficult to believe. So what that tells us is that we need to start practicing spiritual principles right away. Even when we don't have all the answers, even when we're just beginning, we can start practicing spiritual principles. Um, a friend of mine who was a recovered alcoholic said, anyone who walks into AA can stop lying and stop stealing. There's basic spiritual principles, honesty, unselfishness, putting the welfare of others ahead of our own, that we can begin to practice even when we're coming to believe. And um, Karen M put together a list of these spiritual principles and they're actually, they're on our website, recoveryjam.com, other resources. There's a whole list of things we can start practicing. So we basically can, um, we can do what we know. On page 48, they continue on and they say, okay, some of us resisted, right? Like this is hard to get rid of our old ideas. It says we resisted um, because spiritual, talking about spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism. And they tell us why. We have three handicaps. Obstinacy, which is a stubborn refusal to change our opinion. I guess even when there's evidence. Sensitiveness, which is really a form of pride, right? Like, don't say anything to me. You're just going to ruffle my feathers as if I'm so great that I'm entitled to have no one ever ruffle my feathers. And the third one that we talked about, unreasoning prejudice. And they say, okay, we have to abandon this thinking. But you know what makes it easy to abandon that? And it says alcohol or for us food. It says it beat us into a state of reasonableness. And they say, this was a tedious process. We hope no one else will be prejudiced for as long as some of us were. So if we want to, we can just take the list of prejudices, inventory them and see which ones we have, and then counter them. I wouldn't say to just list the prejudices you have. Like, yes, I think there is no God because anyone who ever said they were religious was a nasty person. I say, okay, counter that. And then we think it through like, well, okay, I haven't met everyone who said they're religious. I haven't met Mother Teresa. Maybe if she was the only religious person I had met, I would have been gung-ho for God. So we want to, this is where we want to use our brains to really think. And they tell us that. They say, um, think about it. Like, and they go on and they give the whole analysis of um, the what is it, the electricity and the prosaic steel girder and all that. And all I'll say about that is we use electricity without understanding it. I don't need to understand about electrons and how they get from somewhere into this plug in my house that if I put something in, I get a light. I have no idea how that happens, but I know that I need the light. So I don't need to understand everything about God. Um, I just know that when I surrender my life to him and try and do what I think he wants, the obsession with food is gone and life just works. 
So, and they go, they talk about things like that, that we accept things like electricity, but suddenly when it comes to God, our perverse streak comes to the surface and we laboriously set out to convince ourselves it isn't so. We read wordy books and indulge in windy arguments, thinking we believe this universe needs no God to explain it. Why would we do that, right? Why would I not hesitate to go to a doctor if I had a broken leg, but hesitate to go to God? And I think it's a largely because, um, you know, we know what the doctor is going to do. He's going to ask us to pay our $50 copay and then our insurance gets billed. But what's God going to ask, right? For me to surrender, for me to just surrender my will um, to doing his will. Ultimately, we find that his will is better than anything we could have imagined. But back when I'm selfish and self-centered, I can't imagine it. I didn't surrender my life to God because I thought, oh, God's like going to be great and awesome and life's going to be awesome. It was like I had no choice. I had no other options. And I knew it couldn't be any worse than the way my life was at the time. And they continue on on page 49 and they say, we beg of you to lay aside prejudice, even against organized religion. And it, it talks about how we are. It says, we're people who amuse ourselves by cynically dissecting spiritual beliefs and practices. When we might have observed many spiritually minded person of all races, colors, and creeds were demonstrating a degree of stability, happiness, and usefulness which we should have sought ourselves. So I think no matter what our religion, our religion or lack of religion, we all can say we respect Mother Teresa. And we know that she drew her strength from God, that she was a, a person who was a spiritual person. And they tell us how to know if we're really on a valid spiritual path. It says true religion or spirituality leads to stability, happiness, and usefulness. Am I stable? That means every little curveball in life doesn't throw me. Am I happy? I mean, again, not all the time, you know, put on the news and see horrible things happening and saying, this is great. It doesn't mean that, but it's like, generally, are we, are we content? Are we happy with life? And are we useful? So as we go through the steps, our usefulness just in, keeps increasing. So page 50, it tells us what we do instead. We look at the human defects of people and sometimes we use their shortcomings as a basis of wholesale condemnation. We condemn a hundred percent. We have black and white thinking, right? It's like, let's say I meet one Eskimo and that Eskimo is mean. I would just then, it, it would mean that I would say all Eskimos are mean. So they're telling us not to do that. And everyone has human defects. Even the best of us have defects. But they say, okay, we tell our stories here. After the text section, they say, there's a lot of personal stories. And in it, you'll find a whole variety of ways where each one of them approaches and conceives of God, how they have a relationship with God, what they believe about God. There's a whole variety. So if 
Um, Dr. Bob's story doesn't appeal to you. Maybe our Southern friend's story will appeal to you. You know, there's so many stories they are saying, read them, you know, something will appeal to you. But they say this, on one thing, all the writers of the story agree on, all of them. Try and get two alcoholics to agree on anything. And they're saying they all agreed. And it's this, every one of them has gained access to and believes in a power greater than himself. So belief, but not just belief, belief alone is useless, right? If I believed in electricity, but never plugged in my lamp, my belief would do me no good. So gained access to, access to the, to the creator of the universe. It's really mind boggling when we think about it. And it says that this power has in each case, so in 100% of the people, accomplished the miraculous. And how do they define miraculous? The humanly impossible. So it says, here's thousands of people, and this is what they say. As soon as they've, one, come to believe in a power greater than themselves, so to have faith, two, to take a certain attitude toward that power, surrender out of humility, and three, to do certain simple things, clear away the wreckage of our past, help others. There's been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking, right? That's how they define a spiritual experience, a revolutionary change. They say in the face of collapse and despair and the total failure of human resources. So this isn't this program isn't for someone who wants to lose five pounds to look better at their high school reunion. We are people who truly were on the brink of collapse and despair and failure in, you know, in various ways. And it says, what happened? It says they found, we found, right? A new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. So it's not like it was in me, you know, like Star Wars, the force waiting to be awakened, flowed into me like a pick line of grace coming from God. And when, it says, this happens soon after we wholeheartedly meet a few simple requirements, the requirements laid out in the book. And it says, um, these people are able to say the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives. And I can honestly say for me, consciousness doesn't mean that I say, oh yeah, God's sitting here right now. It's not like um, a tangible thing most of the time, but it's an awareness that there's God, he's here, he's with me, he's aware of me, he loves me, and he has the power to do what I can't do for myself. And he's still in the miracle business. And so they go ahead and they say, okay, you know, here, and they're still trying to convince people. They're saying, okay, you know, you guys may be scientists, um, but don't let your mind be fettered by superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. And remember what science says today may not be true tomorrow. Um, it says Galileo almost got put to death for what he thought. So these things can be blocks. So again, when we're looking at our prejudices, 
we can look at what traditions may be holding me back, what superstitions, what fixed ideas. And page 52, they go ahead and they talk about, they kind of switch gears a little and they say, okay, maybe I need to change the way that I think. And they say, after all, my life isn't working. And then they start talking about a life that doesn't work on page 52. And none of these things here mention alcohol. They say, you know, we need to apply to our human problems, the same readiness we use to change our point of view on other things, such as man can never fly to the moon. And then lo and behold, man went to the moon. So it says, maybe this God can help with our other problems that are creating an unmanageable life. Trouble with personal relationships. Why did I have trouble with personal relationships? I wanted my way all the time on everything. That's gonna give me trouble with personal relationships, right? Self-will run riot. An inability to control our emotional natures. A prey to misery and depression. An inability to make a living. Feeling useless, feeling fear, unhappy, unable to be of real help to others. And they say, okay, isn't figuring out a solution to this, these issues more important than whether or not man can fly to the moon? And they say, you see others do it. Look, others, others are doing it um, by a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe. Our ideas didn't work but the God idea does. And then um, I'm just gonna close with talking about two of my favorite brothers, the Wright brothers. Um, on the bottom of page 52, they say the Wright brothers almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. So I think that's kind of interesting, right? Our second step says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's kind of a weird step. In recovery from other illnesses, we don't have came to believe that penicillin could restore us to health, came to believe that chemotherapy could make my cancer cells stop multiplying. But remember, this is a spiritual malady. So we need a spiritual solution. And the first part of it is faith. Faith actually does something. They said the Wright brothers, almost childish faith, like it just defied reason that they could build an airplane was the mainspring of their accomplishment. I would have thought the mainspring of their accomplishment was their like mathematical ability or their ability to like know physics and aerodynamics and gravity and all that stuff. And they said, no, it's their faith. And they go so far as to say, without that, nothing could have happened. Why? Well, here's the way I understand it. Um, in the physical world, our currency to get things done is money, right? That's how, that's how we get things done. If I go to the gas station, I wanna fill up my car with gas. I used to say I hand the clerk a 20, but I filled my car up today and it was, it would cost me about 60 bucks to fill my car up with gas today. So I hand the clerk my credit card or I go into a grocery store and I want a bag of groceries and um, 
I hand the clerk my credit card. If a Martian was looking down on me, they would say, this makes no sense. This woman hands people in stores this tiny little piece of plastic and they put gas in her car and give her food and it would make no sense because a Martian doesn't understand how things work on earth. Maybe in the spiritual world, obviously I can't hand God my American Express card. Faith, faith is how I communicate with him, how I get his attention. Now it's not a quid pro quo, right? At the gas station it is. I give him you know, my credit card, I know I'm gonna get gas. God isn't my servant. So it's not like, okay, I pray, I ask for things. And, you know, it's like rubbing Aladdin's magic lamp. And he's like a genie to come down and grant my wish. No, but it's faith. Came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Without that, nothing happens. And I believe that, um, and again, this is just my belief, that when we say, okay, I believe God that you can help me or I'm willing to believe that you can help me. Then he just calls up a team of angels and says, okay, guys, now we can get to work on that renovation job on her heart. For me, my recovery, I believe started when I said a prayer. And the prayer I said was because I believed in God, but I was what you would call a practical agnostic. It made no difference in my life. I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you're like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and to start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And then I set about doing what I thought he would want me to. But there may be someone here who doesn't even know that God exists. And I say, you can still pray. And your prayer, because prayer always has to be honest. We don't want to say, dear God, I believe you exist when we don't, because what God hears is, dear God, I believe you exist. No, I really don't. So the prayer can go like this. Dear God, I don't know if you exist. And if you exist, I don't know if you care about me. But if you are there and you do care, I need some help. And if there is no God, you're just talking to like dead air. But what if there is, and that has him call up that team of angels that he had on standby waiting for you. And I believe that that's what happened. And again, if I'm wrong and you say that prayer and nothing happens, okay, you're, you're no worse off. Um, next week, we'll pick up and we'll talk about that, how we'll continue talking about faith but how faith has to be coupled with um, surrender. Otherwise, again, we're just practical agnostics. So